welcome to the ABCA's podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Brownlee. This episode is sponsored by Netting Pros. Netting professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Netting professionals specializes in the design, fabrication, and installation of custom netting for backstops, batting cages, dugouts, BP screens, and ball carts. They also design and install digital graphic wall padding, windscreen, turf, turf protectors, dugout benches, dugout cubbies, and more. Netting Professionals is an official partner of the ABCA and continues to provide quality products and services to many high school, college, and professional fields, facilities, and stadiums throughout the country. Netting Professionals are improving programs one facility at a time. Contact them today at 844-620-2707 or info at nettingpros.com. Visit them online at www.nettingpros.com or check out Netting Pros on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn for all their latest products and projects. Make sure to let CEO Will Miner know that the ABCA sent you. Now on to the podcast. Support for this episode is brought to you by the Headset app. Are you looking for a simple solution for coach to catcher communication for the season that doesn't require bulky hardware in the dugout? Traditional communication gear can be a headache to set up and carry from game to game. But what if there's a game-changing solution? Introducing the Headset app, your new MVP in communication for coaches and catchers. Enjoy crystal clear, ultra HD audio without the major league price tag. It's compatible with any Bluetooth headset or earbuds. Say goodbye to tangled wires and extra hardware. Ready to step up to the plate? Download the Headset app for free today. Getting started is as easy as a home run trot. Create your account, invite your team, and start calling pitches. The Headset app is ready for download in the App Store and on Google Play. Swing for the fences and download today to get a five-day free trial. And for a limited time, use ABCA24 when you buy your pass for next season and save 10%. Find out more at theheadsetapp.com. Next up on the ABCA podcast, 2024 ABCA Hall of Fame class inductee, former Miami head coach Jim Morris. Morris retired in 2020. In his 25-season tenure at Miami, no program has qualified for the College World Series as much as Morris and the Hurricanes. Miami, which qualified for the NCAA Tournament, a college baseball record 44 consecutive years, made it to Omaha in 13 of Morris's 25 seasons in Coral Gables. Morris set an NCAA record for guiding a program to the College World Series in each of his first six seasons at Miami, a three-time National Coach of the Year and 2008 Atlantic Coast Conference Coach of the Year. Morris won almost 1,100 games at Miami, and including his 12 years at Georgia Tech, he has 10 wins shy of 1,600 wins at the Division I level. Overall, Morris was the head coach at the collegiate level for 41 seasons, spending the first four at DeKalb Community College from 1976 to 1979, and registered 1,721 wins total. Morris was inducted into the National College Baseball Hall of Fame in 2020. Let's welcome Jim Morris to the podcast. Listen carefully. It's one of the things as you get older. <laughs> Speaking of that, how's your dad doing? Uh, tremendous. Tremendous. Yeah, they, they love How old is he goal. now? He is 76. Well, I'm 73, so we're uh, about the same age. But uh, You won a lot more games than he did. Wow. 
I did it longer than he did too. Uh, but I can remember going to the University of Evansville when I was in grade school. Uh, they played at the city park. Yep. And I watched them uh, play at the uh, city park, and me and my dad were sitting there in the bleachers, and I, I don't remember anybody else sitting in the bleachers except me and my dad, to be honest, and watching it. And I'm sure they got an on-campus facility now. And, yeah, <clears> he he. Uh, you know, when he first got there, there was no dugouts. There was nothing. And then he got smart. He got in with uh, the city. And so they played at Bossy Field for a long time. And so, I, you know, we played at Bossy Field through, you know, my senior year. And then he got sideways with the city because they were raising all this money. Him and Don Mattingly and Bob Greasy, all these guys were doing the the Friends of Bossy Field night, night of memories, and they'd raise like $200,000 for Bossy Field, but we were still having to do a lot of the work there, so he got he got into it with the city, and so they played on campus for a little bit, and then he finally got money raised for an on-campus facility, which is nice now. I remember, you know, I coached a USA team in, uh, <clears throat> in 1990. We went to Evansville to uh, – I don't remember where we played at. Field. We were kind of we in and out quick on one day staying there, so I didn't get to see much, really. It's back with the Pan American Games, wasn't it? That was 1990 was the uh, Goodwill Games. Yep. 1987, I was an assistant coach for Frazier. That was the Pan American Games. Yeah, because Skip Burtman was 88 because Bennis pitched for Skip. Um, I think Jim Abbott was on that team, too. Yeah, Jim was on a team in 97, and I was actually the pitching coach you know, for Coach Frazier and bullpen coach and uh, with Jim Abbott, and we got some some good stories about Jim, but uh, I don't really want to tell them. Not, but I, he, uh, I remember watching him pitch at Bossy Field. Excuse me? I remember watching Jim Abbott pitch at Bossy Field. In college? or would Yeah, you, would... on that 87, because they, they must have done it back-to-back -back years where the team, for whatever reason, because Bossy Field is the third oldest stadium in the United States behind Fenway and Wrigley. So, I mean, it, it was kind of a draw back then where I do remember watching Jim Abbott pitch in 87 at Bossy Field. Well, I was there then, yep. if that's the case, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Old, old dugout. The dugouts were sunk down but close to, close to home plate. Well, dugouts used to be dugouts. Yes, yeah, yep. Not, not uh, even with the ground like they are now. Yeah. Here with Jim Morris, 2024 ABC Hall of Fame inductee, 25 years at Miami, but national titles in 99 and 21, 12 years at Georgia Tech, ended his career with over 1,500 wins and uh, also in the National College Baseball Hall of Fame. So, Coach Morris, thanks for jumping on with me. Thank you. It's an honor to be on and uh, look forward to spending some time with you. Yeah. Was it hard for you to leave Georgia Tech knowing what type of team that you had coming in to go to Miami? Well, it was because uh, when I took the job at Georgia Tech uh, in 1982 was the first season. Uh, to we, had, we were in the Atlantic Coast Conference, and we'd never finished above last in the conference. And the concession stand was a Coke machine that they charged a quarter for Cokes. And when I left, we were number one in the country, and – so I left uh, Nomar and Veritek and Jay Payton and Brad Rigby, first rounders, by the way. Uh, Rigby was a sandwich pick. 
So we were really good and, and built something I thought special. But as uh, Paul D., the athletic director at Miami, said, you know, when he went over everything and recruited me, a very unique situation. I'm standing in the center field with with uh, Mr. D. I told him if anybody found out about it, I, I was out. And they were recruiting me. And he said that uh, <clears throat> I got anything I needed to win. I get anything that football gets. And the salary would not be an issue. And all that was true. In fact, I said, Mr. D, would you, it's just me and him standing in the outfield. I said, would you repeat that again slowly? And all that really came true. It was a, a really an offer that uh, was a tough thing to do. But uh, I was all, also really uh, intrigued with Miami and what they had done in the past. And Coach Frazier was uh, a mentor and a great friend of mine. And I, uh, so from that standpoint, it was a decision that, uh, you know, I really, you know, had to make at that point in my career. And I give you a lot of credit because if you look at the landscape of college baseball for the guys that came after a legend, it doesn't always work out for those guys. So for what you did at Miami taking over for Coach Frazier, I don't think that happens very often. Well, I got to tell you, I didn't really think about that very much in the process. I was young and and not very smart, I guess, but it you know, ended up being a good decision. But uh, I, I never thought about that. I knew Coach Frazier uh, – that was the guy that he wanted to uh, follow him. And that was very, very important to me, knowing that he was there to support me. I also knew that uh, I really went to college to be an architect. And at this date, I've owned 42 houses. It's kind of my hobby is real estate. So I've enjoyed that uh, as a hobby. And at many years, it was uh, <laughs> more profitable, to be honest, in coaching early in my career in particular. But it was uh, it was a tough decision because I love Georgia Tech. Uh, Homer Rice was very influential in my career, uh, Dr. Rice, and I, I called him Coach Rice because he was the head football coach for the Bengals, and, and but he played for the uh, uh, the old Brooklyn Dodgers. He was a catcher, so he knew baseball, and I thought that was important too. And he wanted to build a program at Tech, and we did. And then at Miami, they had done going to the World Series and won championships, and. I wanted to be part of that. Well, yeah, you took Miami to out of your first 15 years, you went 11 times at Omaha. <clears throat> well, I know we went to first six. I'm not sure of that, but we finally won it. And <clears throat> finally, you know, it's amazing to say that, but in 99, after we had lost in 96 on the, the last pitch, which has brought up more than the 99 and 01 championships. But uh, the real deal is that uh, we went a lot early, which kind of, made it easier to coach there because people saw that. But after a certain point, Miami fans are tough. I mean, they're tough. And so, yeah, we're good at going, but when are you going to win it? Yeah, I heard that too. So it was uh, it was time to get it done with uh, – but I always knew Coach Frazier ever support me and I could ask questions. And, and I did ask him a lot and spent a lot of time with him. Did you feel like it was just going to be a matter of time before you guys won it? it? It's really hard. to It's hard to get there, but it's hard to win it. Did you feel like it was just going to be a matter of time before you guys won it? No, I, I got to tell you, I never felt like that. <clears throat> we went early and I was happy to go. The first year we finished, I think, fifth when we went. And uh, we, uh, so I was happy to get there. But after a certain point, especially after 96, when we're up by uh, one run in the ninth inning with two outs and a man on first brace and, and 
Warren Morris, who hadn't hit a home run all year to hit 220, he'd been on a DL some. A broken hand. Uh, yeah, he hit a breaking ball that was not a strike. First pitch breaking ball right down the line. It hooked down the line. The wind was blowing out. Well, I mean, I've never been so crushed in my whole life. I had nightmares for for a long time about that. And I never felt that, hey, it's just a question of time. I uh, didn't take that for granted. I didn't know whether I would be back the next year. And uh, to, to the World Series, a special event and a special thing to get there is uh, all college coaches get to know. And then if you want, it's even, you know, again, special. Was it harder <clears throat> to coach or be an adjunct professor after you finished coaching? Well, they had talked to me when I was coaching. <clears throat> and when I first started, I, 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 you know, I want to make sure I, people understand. I mean, I was a junior college player and played at Elon University and Elon College back in the day. And then I started a program and, and junior college was, was really the stepping stone to where I got. And and uh, we started a program in Atlanta to Camp College. And my second year, we were in, we were in the national finals. And, had a bunch of guys, 47 guys drafted in four years. Four, so that was really the, the open the doors for uh, for my career to be able to, to end up at Miami and all that's important along with Georgia Tech, along with Miami, because I, I was trying to figure out, to be honest, how to dress or uh, wear a ring. And so I, I just felt like, the, as you said, I was inducted to College Baseball Hall of Fame. So I, uh, I put that ring on because that's really uh, – it, it, it's related to all the programs to get to this particular point. I mean, how did you get to DeKalb from Appalachian State? Right. I was a, I was playing with the Red Sox, and uh, I was up there in the winter, and I went by the office. And this, this just tells you you never know where you're going. But I was there. I thought, well, while I'm there, I'll go by and see the baseball field and go by the coach's office and say hello, not having no idea who the coach was. And I went by and I started to introduce myself because you don't need to tell me who you are. I know you're Jim Morris and you hit 242 last year. You played in the Carolina league. And I went, Oh my, I said, that's enough about my stats. He <laughs> said, my name's also Jim Morris. So he had exactly the same name. And before I left that day, he offered me an assistant coaches or a, a GA position with a grad assistant position, which we don't have now. And, with uh, financial aid and everything that made it happen to be able to go there. And, um, you know, I kind of opened the doors too to give me a chance because I had to teach at the cap college. And, uh, so I've actually taught six years in college as a full-time teacher. And then at Miami, after I retired, I took a year off and then I was an adjunct professor in sports management. And, <clears throat> excuse me. If I still lived in Miami, I would, probably be teaching because I really enjoyed teaching and enjoyed going on campus and being with the students. And then I moved to Vero beach during uh, COVID and everything. And I, uh, I just wasn't as much fun for me doing it on zoom. I got to tell you, and here we are doing a zoom call, but, uh, I didn't, didn't feel the same, uh, uh, way that I felt when I could talk to them, I could look at their faces and smile and see them walk in the classroom and, put your hands up and just felt like there was a different relationship with students. And I was doing it more to, uh, get back. In fact, I remember I, uh, I got my first paycheck and I called the head of the department. I think I, I told her, I said, I think you guys made a mistake on my paycheck. You left a couple of zeros off and <laughs> she started laughing, but, uh, 
but it's uh, it, was, it was a different thing. But I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed that part of my career. So I taught three and a half years, and this I've been I haven't not been teaching that for one year, and due to some health issues. Pat McQuaid said you guys were at App State at the same time. You know what? I didn't know that we weren't. He was not he was on the same football. coaching staff that I was, so I did not know that. You know, the Miami guy. That of course, I met when I was in Miami. A great coach and had some great teams and players, but uh, I did not know that he was an App State guy. And I, uh, I just know that I was there for one year. And a day in February, I had a bunch of snow, and I sent out 150 letters. The next day, I got to get out of the snow and get to a place where. I'm, I was freezing to death. So, so how did you get to Florida State then from DeKalb? Well, I wasn't going to bring that up. You know, I was actually there spying. And I wasn't really coaching, but uh, I always tell people that. But, uh, well, you know, that that DeKalb College deal, uh, I mean, we, we're national runner up the second year, and everybody but one guy signed a pro contract. I mean, we're good. We had 47 draft picks in four years. That's how I got to Florida State because we had great players. So, Florida State was recruiting uh, our players along with a lot of other people. And uh, I just kind of opened the door for that. And I didn't really know Mike. I knew Mike Martin. <clears throat> I knew Dick Hauser a little bit better than Mike. And I'd played in Dick's golf tournament when he was there for a year. And that kind of introduced me to Mike. And and when Mike got the job, uh, he offered me a coaching job and I got to go down there for a year and a half with, uh, I was his first assistant at Florida state and it was a great, great experience for me. Well, you, I mean, obviously your numbers, but uh, you know, from the outside looking in with Mike Martin senior, he won 2000 games in 40 seasons. I mean, it's, it's hard well, to fathom that you win that many games in that short amount of time. And, and you're, well, your I was there for his... right up there too, but it's crazy to think that he averaged 50 wins a season for 40 seasons. Yeah, I was there for his first one, so <laughs> I don't know, and uh, I don't know exactly how many I have, but it's not not as many as he's had. Of course, he's got more than anybody, and uh, so. Uh, I read a story where when you were at Florida State, you went down to play Miami, and Coach Frazier roped the field off for the the fans to sit in the in foul territory on the field. Well, that's the thing that made my uh, I guess the thing a lot. Uh, very special to me at Florida State. Sometimes you make moves and you don't understand. As a young coach, uh, I mean, when I was at Florida State, I guess I was 24, 25, those two years. And uh, I'd never been to, you know, really seen a Miami game, even though I did go down there and work out when I was playing with the Red Sox one time. But I got to see that, that big-time baseball, that atmosphere, and the stands weren't big enough, and you had to rope off both sidelines. And, uh, and I'm just kind of in awe of the whole deal. And I got a chance to meet Coach Frazier and ended up becoming friends with him and then coached with him on the 87 USA team. I was one of his three assistants, uh, uh, one of them being Jerry Weinstein, that, that's being, indu being inducted or been inducted. I don't know. Jerry's inducted, a, and he's our lefty Gomez winner, too. That's our highest yeah. honor. Well, he's a, a great guy and probably as knowledgeable. He was my roommate. Probably as knowledgeable as anybody I've ever been and around. still is. Uh, like, he's he's moved on with the times, too. Like, he's still – he's in the new stuff, too. It's awesome. <clears throat> well, yeah, he's still he's still sporting the high stirrups and running, though. It's amazing. <laughs> he, uh, but a uh, very good friend. His birthday, I think, was last week or the week before. And 
I still stay in touch with Jerry, but I uh, respect him more as much as anybody in the game, without question. But I was lucky that I got to know Coach Fraser really well at that time. And Jerry was actually on his coaching staff at uh, at Miami, along with Brad Kelly, two of the coaches, my other two, the two coach assistants. And so I got to be good friends. And again, that didn't realize what was going on. I didn't realize when I was at the Cab College that was going to open the door for me. I started a program. We didn't have a field. And, you know, and being the young, uh, ambitious, probably not very smart, not that I am now, a coach that, uh, you know, the first schedule I released ever at Cap College, I included the World Series in it. And people are going, what? You know, they're going, what are you doing? In the second year we were there. So we, we it was kind of a thing that uh, sometimes you're, you just, you look and you have goals. And I'm a very goal-oriented person. It was always to be in the World Series. That roster to Cab was that mostly Atlanta kids? Uh, mostly, of course, because Atlanta's a great area. And, uh, but I had kids from South Carolina and North Carolina and Pennsylvania, the, uh, uh, the number one pick in the country from Pennsylvania, from Hershey, Pennsylvania, a catcher out of there. And so I had some first runners and I still always stood on my guys very hard about going to class and studying whether I was at the Cap College or, or Georgia Tech or Miami. My guys graduated, they went to class or they didn't play. And uh, so uh, I had good students too, so those guys, I had a lot of guys that had opportunities to go to a Florida state or go to an Auburn or go to different schools, uh, not just sign pro. And even though initially I thought my job at junior college coach was to develop guys for pro ball, but I found out pretty quick, really my most important things developed them for later life, which, which include education. And so I got guy, a lot of guys went to school too. So is that, that how you got the opportunity at Georgia tech then because of what you had done at DeKalb? It really is. Back in the day, again, so many NCAA rules are, are changed, but back back in the day, and that was 19, uh, let's see, 76, 77, 78, 79. So I'm, I'm showing my age here. Uh, but you could play outside competition. So as a junior college coach, and we might have been the best team in the state, to be honest with you, including Tech and Georgia and the, Georgia Southern, out of the other schools. And I, but, uh, we played them 40 times during my career. Played Georgia Tech 40 games while I was there, and we were 39-1. So I kind of made an impression on Georgia Tech and our head coach then, uh, Jim Luck, who was the head coach for 31 years before me. Just like when I went to Miami, the head coach, Ron Frazier, was at uh, Miami for 41 years before – I mean, 31 years before me. But he recommended me to Homer Rice, and I was actually the only guy who was interviewed – and the interview with the Homer Rice, he asked me questions that he knew every answer. He just wanted to know if I knew the answer. So I really believe that to the day. He knew what it was going to take to win. He wanted to know if I knew what it took. And immediately we went to max scholarships and, and did some things. And we had a great product to sell and being Georgia Tech. And I think that's uh, when you look at the different programs like Duke now is winning. And he's done a great job. The coaches have done a great job there. But you got a great product to sell. I always thought if basketball could win at Duke, then baseball could win at Duke. Same way at uh, Georgia Tech and Miami. Yeah, and Georgia Tech was 4-23 and in ACC play before you got there. Well, I know we hadn't won many games. I didn't know the record. And 
Then I got there in 82 and 85, 86, 87, 88, we won ACC championships. So we were able to, to recruit some guys. We got a few transfers in. It wasn't quite like the uh, transfer portal, but we got a few transfers in that were not happy for some reason, a four year school that came in. And anyway, we got, we got pretty good, pretty quick, you know, with, uh, the, the kids we recruited, I had some a scout from New York Mets, a guy named Joe Willingham, that was very influential in my crew, was my career. Uh, that uh, enough, I can tell you, 404-934-13, excuse me, 811 was his, uh, his number. I can remember his number. I called him so much, but he was very influential and helped me find some players. And a guy named Tommy Mixon from the Dodgers that really took me under and helped me a lot. So we developed a lot of players that, uh, you know, did very well. And, you know, I, I, the pro guys helped me. And the guys signed pro probably helped me more early in my career than late in the career. You were marketing the director and head of ticket sales when you first got to Georgia Tech, correct? Well, not when I first got there. I'm trying to think how many years. I was at Tech just as a baseball coach for a few years. And Homer Rice, Dr. Rice, really wanted me to uh, – to, to maybe get out of coaching, be his <laughs> assistant. And uh, so uh, he talked to me about it to make me uh, in charge of that and involved in fundraising because I was raising a lot of money for for uh, the baseball program. In fact, my first major project was lights. And I went into Coach Rice and I, I told him, I said, you know, I want to do this. And this is how I'm going to do it. I'm going to sell wall ads and it's going to take three years. And it's how I'm going to raise the money. He says, well, I want you to put that in writing. So I left his office, which I never met with him. It was all memos back then. And uh, so I came back a week or two later, whenever you know, he could meet with me and uh, showed it to him. He says, that, look, that looks good. And I can remember this like it was yesterday. He reached into the desk, in his desk and pulled out a piece of paper. says, I, James W. Marsh, will raise $100,000 for lights. I went, oh, I got to sign this. So it, it kind of hit home, but that was my first project. And from that point uh, on, when I raised the money and saw, he saw what I was doing, he saw a bigger picture that you could, instead of selling a wall ad for 3000 you could get somebody to give you a million dollars. And a guy named John Williams gave me $3 million in one gift while I was there. So I was able to, to get some nice gifts. And of course, Rush Chandler, the stadium was named after, gave us a big gift. And he saw that. So he ended up getting me more involved in fundraising and ticket sales. And I told him I would do it. And he said he wanted me to go full-time into that way. And I said, well, let me do both for one year. Again, it shows how young and, and, and not real smart. I told him, I said, I'll make a deal with you. You let me do both for one year. Give me no pay raise so I don't feel like I have to, uh, you know, go one way or the other. No pay raise, and then I get to choose. And he said, okay. Of course he said, okay, no pay raise. And so I did it. And then after one year, I said, I just can't. Because I was going at 5 o'clock every morning. We're playing night games. And if you're raising money for football and doing marketing and promote, all that stuff, and, you know, most of that's done in the spring for fall. So I was normally going in at 5 and getting home at 11 at night. So I was working long days and just couldn't do both. But I really, really enjoyed the fundraising. You get a chance to meet uh, the tech people, a lot of special people. In fact, I'm going back uh, – Saturday night to one of my former players uh, to a party at Georgia Tech downtown, and he's hit it big. I'm telling you, this is the biggest house I've been in ever before. It's the biggest house I've ever been in. And uh, 
So a bunch of tech guys will be a bunch of players. He wouldn't tell me who. So I'm flying in Saturday morning, flying out Sunday just to be at a party at his house and see guys that, to be honest, I haven't seen in 30 years. Uh, some of the players by left tech. So uh, it's, I'm really looking forward to that. <clears throat> One of my former bosses, Spanky McFarland, he was your pitching coach when Kevin Brown was there. He still says that's his biggest mistake is he should have never left Georgia Tech to go to Northern Illinois. It's, 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 who was that again? I'm sorry. Spanky McFarland. Yes. <clears throat> well, he left there to go to South Florida. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I don't, I've mean, never looked at it like that. He, whatever he felt like, <clears throat> maybe he felt South Florida could, could, could uh, grow more. But Georgia Tech's another, I mean, Kevin Brown's another guy. I got to tell you, we did not know who Kevin Brown was when he walked on. He's a football player, too, wasn't he? he Kevin did not get one letter or one phone call from a college or a pro guy uh, to you know sign pro or go to another college. He walked on as a chemical engineer. Good arm. Danny Hall and I talked about this. So, you know, you go to Miami, he comes to Georgia Tech, and then you guys end up at, in Omaha together. You're on the opposite side of the bracket, but – did you think about that at all when you get to Omaha and Georgia Tech's there that you guys might end up playing each other? It was a very uncomfortable situation, I got to tell you, because I, <laughs> you know, I, I mean, I love Georgia Tech and the people there, and I still do. And uh, so we're, we're both staying at the same hotel, the Marriott, outside on the perimeter there in Omaha. And I can visualize Omaha very well. As Coach Frazier used to say, it's his favorite place in the country. And I got to understand what he meant by that. But we were in the same hotel, and I went down to the lobby the first day to do something. And when I did, I saw a bunch of the uh, uh, Georgia Tech guys. First guy was Nomar, came up and thanked me, and which was very nice. And uh, and from then on, I went out the back door. I said, "Man, I just don't, <laughs> I don't feel comfortable." They told me I look funny in this orange and green outfit, and, and so I went out the back door after that. I mean, you've really kind of ushered in the growth of college baseball from what it was when you first started to where it is now, because 2020 was your last year. So, I mean, talk about the growth of the, of the game itself in your time. Well, I mean, when I, <clears throat> you know, people didn't draw. There were only a few schools that really emphasized baseball, Miami being one of them. And because of my relationship with Coach Fraser. Uh, I took our associate athletic director there. I asked him if he would go to Miami. I wanted him to see what they were doing. There's a school that's winning big time that's uh, in a large metropolitan area. We're doing things I thought we could do. And Coach Frazier was very influential for sitting down with me and Jim Murphy, who later became the athletic director at uh, Davidson and is retired now. Like one of my former assistants told me, he said, well, all the guys that work for you, your friends are either uh, – retired or dead, which is pretty close, it seems like. And uh, we went down and he talked to us about what he did at Miami and how he did it. And I got to tell you, we just copied what Miami was doing. And other, pro other programs did the same thing. Because Coach Frazier, no matter what it was, first time they had bat girls was at Miami. First time they had Astor is at Miami. First time they played East against West is Miami against USC. All the first were at Miami under Coach Frazier. So I felt like I was following the most influential coach in the history of college baseball. And I still do feel that way. And, but I also knew that he was there to support me. 
And Paul D. told the team my first day there that he went to two people to ask who he should hire. He went to uh, Coach Frazier and Coach Burtman, both Miami guys, both in the Hall of Fame. Both numbers retired at Miami, by the way, and so is mine now, which is nice. And uh, uh, asked Skip and asked Coach Frazier who would they hire. And both of them, he, he told the team and told me that uh, both of them said me. So I, which I didn't really know that time I was standing into the team meeting. And so I kind of opened the door to the team, I guess, because some guys played for coach Frazier in 92, played for another coach named Brad Kelly in 93, only lasted one year. And for me in 94, so there was a quick turnover uh, there. And uh, So there was somebody that followed coach Frazier. Yeah, people don't know that. I, that yeah, the, you look at the, you look at the guys that tried to follow the legend. It's uh, it, it's tough, man. It's tough. Those are big shoes to fill. Well, it is, but you know the thing. I knew he he wanted me to win just as bad as I did, so I knew he was there to help me. And I just, just kind of, you know, I was forty two years old, and and we'd been pretty well at uh, done pretty good at at uh, Georgia Tech, but I needed to take that next step, and that was to get to Omaha. What would you like to see for college baseball going forward? These are are different times now. This is stuff that that none of us have had to deal with. What would you like to see for college baseball going forward? Well, baseball, I mean, college sports, but particularly college baseball is growing so fast. And I'd like to see the uh, transfer portal slow down a little bit more and have team development and, and the things that we kind of used to do to win so much turtle on the roster and I need to get control of that and control of NIL, even though I think the NIL is probably an advantage for Miami because that's a very wealthy alums and, and a lot of money there in Miami to be able to help recruit players. But, uh, you know, uh, too many well, decisions to be made right guys, now. You guys had, you guys were doing the cost of education piece for all students at Miami <laughs> for, for, uh, <laughs> You know, well, it costs right now. It costs uh, at Miami. It's it's about eighty thousand uh, dollars. You know, a hundred thousand or so after tax before taxes. You know, to pay for it. And I actually, uh, we we've got a daughter graduating there this year with a, an industrial engineering degree, so I can relate to that. And got another daughter a, a sophomore there, so we it, it's very very expensive. So you go in and offer somebody a half scholarship and they go, oh, wow, that's a lot of money. So how much do I have to pay? Well, you got to pay another 40. I kind of changed the, uh, you know, outlook and everything. And so you, you are, it's harder to recruit. Uh, and early in my career, we had uh, financial aid and late in my career, the president took that away. So it, it made a big impact when we had no financial aid help in baseball, you know, starting in 2002. So you can track that down, but you know, that affected all the sports programs and, and they got this, the, the financial aid back now at Miami under the new president, president Frank. And, and, uh, so it helps in recruiting with the NIL. It's kind of even that out to get back. You know, Miami's been good. I know nobody feels sorry. <laughs> that is or Miami, when, when I'm trying to blues about the cost and everything. Cause it was very, very important. We recruited guys out of Miami, and a lot of our kids wanted to stay at home, particularly the, the Cuban kids. So they, they, they did not want to leave home. They wanted to stay there. So I kind of saved you room and board. So I helped you recruit some of those guys. And uh, so, you know, you just got to go with what you got to go and sell what you have, which I thought 
course, taking Miami or different situations or even in the junior college that when I was in, so you learn to do what you got to do to, uh, to make it work. And that's the same thing. Got a new coach now, the second coach after me, J.D. Arteaga. It's a new head coach. It's his first season. And, you know, I was down there last week and met with him and the coaches. And we were just talking. I said, well, and they're talking about all these changes. I said, well, be careful. Be careful, guys. You know, that, that guy before you had some things that worked. So don't change don't change everything. Remember, they're, they're with you, win or tie. And we have no ties. So it's we were kind of laughing together, told some good stories. Coached over 150 professional baseball players and 20-plus big leaguers. That's a pretty good resume from a development standpoint. What do you feel mm -hmm. like you were doing maybe that was different than some other coaches were doing from a development standpoint? Well, I was lucky uh, in my junior college, and I, I got to go back because that was a start. I think that people needed, needed – there's different avenues to get to a Miami or get to one of the top programs, and Miami's always been considered – one of the top programs. There's different ways to get there, the skinny cat, as they say. Mine was through the junior college route. It wasn't something I was given or anything like it. I, I totally earned getting to Miami through winning at uh, at different places. So that was something that was uh, that was very, very important to remember that when you're talking about how I got to Miami and how I became, you know, winning and got into the Hall of Fames and I'm in the Hall of Fame at Georgia Tech and Miami also which are great honors, all these are. How did you get Pat Burrell to come to Miami from California? You know, it's funny how you got funny recruiting stories. Pat Burrell, Pat comes in on a recruiting trip, and he really wasn't our number one choice. There was a kid out of San Diego. and Miami, you recruit South Florida, and we recruited California because we didn't think a kid from North Carolina would leave. Greensboro, North Carolina, I'll use that since you, you know uh, – yeah, ACC country, you're going to have a harder time getting those kids. Well, you know, you come into Miami, you go, where? You get off to an airplane, you go, where am I at? It's such a different thing, you know, the Spanish over the, you know, the speaker system, and you're looking around, you go, oh, my gosh, and they got 24 hours to feel at home or 48 hours to feel like this. Yeah, this is me. So, whereas, you know, California was more like Miami, and we'd tell them to bring their surfboard. Not, we didn't tell them we didn't have waves, but they could bring their surfboard. So we're able to bring some players from, you know, from California. And Pat came in and, and Rob Cooper was my uh, student assistant at that time. And Rob, of course, from, had a coach at Penn State and Wright State. And he's back and, in Miami uh, now. Excuse me? He's back. He's back on the staff yeah. at Miami. Yeah. So, but, but Pat comes in and and uh, you always get that guy lower on the totem pole that give that early flight to take him back to the airport on Sunday morning. Pat had an early flight, and we said, now, nah, you take him back, but we don't want him to commit. Well, he committed on the trip back to the airport to come to Miami. And uh, Coop came, came in and said, he committed. And we're going, oh, you know, we got a guy coming in next week. We were hoping this guy, it tells you how smart we were, but – Really, Burrow was not offered scholarships at other schools. He made some visits to schools in California. He got much, much better in particular. He was drafted in the 43rd round out of high school. He was offered $1,000. Three years later, he got $8 million. But he played on the Ohio Warhawks. I guess I'm giving a, a, a summer program a, a little advertising here. But, man, he came in the first day and hit in our parking with all the rookies and the returning players, we had them work out together. 
kind of a voluntary workout showcase to, to, to and we went, oh my gosh, how did this guy get here from day one? Of course, he hit 493 as a freshman. And, you know, he's a great, great player. I think he's the best hitter I ever seen, I've ever seen in college. That's a strong statement, too, because with the guys that you had rolling through Georgia Tech, but also Miami, I think about Ryan Braun, Yonder Alonzo. I mean, that's 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 pretty strong statement saying Pat Braun. You know, I didn't say Ryan. I didn't say playing for him. I said I, the, <laughs> the best players I ever saw. <laughs> You know, period. He and I played against each other in the Cape League. My junior year was his freshman summer, so uh, I did get a chance to play against him. He played a Hyannis. We used to actually go hang out at Pat's uh, host family's house in Hyannis because Katuit's close to Hyannis, so I did get a chance to hang out with Pat that summer. Just built cool. different. He reminded me of Scott Rowland. Yeah, Scott you know, Rowland he's a big, up. strong so guy. He reminded yeah, me of Scott Rowland. Of course, he came in like that, 6'4". Yep. You That's know, how Scott Rowland was, too, back 218, then. 220, and yep. when he left after his junior year, he was 6'4", 223 or something. He he, 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 was a, he was a big guy today. He walked in with great arms, strong, and the ball just jumped off his bat. Of course, those were the days of the hot bats, too. So he hit some balls. I think some of them are still rolling. What type of mentality do those guys have that are different from some other players, especially the ones that make it? What type of mentality do they have? Well, I thought a guy like Pat, and I'll talk about him, he came in with a great concentration level. I can think and a great focus. He would come in, and, I mean, I can remember him being the on-deck circle when I was coaching third, and he would look at me, and I'd give signs, and every time he would take his hands, he would hear, and it was like he was locking in, and he would take one step back in the box and lock into the batter's box like nobody I've ever seen. And I don't know whether Pat had it. You know, psychologist before, but he understood what it meant to lock in when he was up at the plate. A very unique guy, a very good student. As you said, Ryan Braun was too, narrated between Miami and Stanford, a California kid. But, you know, we, we, the, it's amazing. The kids, we, when we recruited a kid out of California, <laughs> him or, or Kevin Howard or Bobby Hills or um, some really good players. Every one of those guys seemed to work out, man. Like we recruit maybe one every year or one every two years, and it would always work out. And that's before the the kids started committing. You know, when they were in the in the fourth grade. I'm kidding, but you know, started really committing when in the ninth grade. I remember I called a kid in L.A. and I left a message, and his dad called me back and said, you know, it was a great honor, but. He uh, recruited to uh, – he'd already committed to uh, UCLA in the ninth grade. I said, well, if anything changes, call me back. And I always – the guy committed, it was a done deal. I didn't really recruit him after that. And But that, the, the coach at uh, – Coach Savage really changed that where kids started committing in the ninth, tenth grade, and it worked its way to the East Coast, which was a big change in recruiting. And recruiting is the name of the game. you got to have good players. you got to be organized. you got to work hard. I thought guys at Miami, the difference, I just saw an endless work effort, and particularly the Latin kids, you know, they had that same mentality. They came from Cuba. That was their way out. It was baseball. And it's uh, it was very, very interesting, the atmosphere of Miami and the fans, players, everything. I think this is probably the best time for athleticism in the game that we've seen just with the amount of training that kids are doing at an early age, but maybe lacking some fundamentals. What would you like to see fundamental-wise, or do you feel like college baseball is in a great place from a playing standpoint? 
Well, I think it's different than it was initially when I started coaching because the one thing that, you know, we talk about is the travel teams. I'm not a big travel team guy. Uh, my philosophy anyway, and I've got a 12 year old son, by the way, that's playing travel ball, just finished his travel ball last week. And of course, weather in South Florida is good. It's really cold now. It's about 60 degrees. I got a coat on, but, uh, it's, uh, but travel ball has got advantages, but the problem is these kids come in and meet on the weekend and play. They don't practice. They don't learn how to play the game. I had an assistant named Cam Bonifay that ended up being the general manager of the Pirates and, and scouting director. I mean, and he said that CHP thing is the most important thing when it, when he became my coach on our sheet. So I, I'm, I'm asking Kim, what's that mean? CHP? Cause we were putting in, you know, how tall they were and how fast they were and the arm strength, like these, these showcases do. And he said, CHP, that's all that matters. Can he play? He said, the only thing we know is we got to have guys at tech who can play for us to help us win. And at the big league level, he said in the minor leagues, he was only with me for one year and he went to Pittsburgh as a scouting director. But uh, the biggest thing uh, I see, or one of the biggest thing is guys come in and they can run, you know, six six sixty, and they can uh, throw 95 miles an hour and they can hit it over the scoreboard, but they don't understand the game. And with that said, my son's 12. He's playing on a travel team and, and uh, yeah, he's doing a uh, speed development uh, uh, thing that he does three times a week with an outstanding football coach. And Saturday morning at 8.30, he'll be on the beach running, so it's just, which is one block from the house. And he limits to seven. It's a great speed. I told my son, speed kills, man. I don't care whether you're fast or you're slow, but if you get faster, it's going to make you be better. So now here, here I am. My son's playing travel ball. And we're going to these places for him to play at 12 years old. He just turned 12, 11, 12 years old. And we're doing that some, but I try to work with him a lot on, on individual stuff on, you know, team stuff. He's still playing little league. I love little league and development players. I'm a little league guy and help coach some with little league. And, you know, uh, are you doing I, it much different with the little league guys than you did it with the college guys? Well, I try to incorporate, some of the stuff, you know, we did, but I got to tell you, my son's an infielder working with Nomar Garcia Parra. My son's a little different when he's 11. And <laughs> Nomar's, a, you know, a, a, I think he was the fourth pick in the draft. So they're so talented, some of those guys, that you, you definitely got to make adjustments. And I've learned a lot my last two years. My son didn't play baseball until he got here, so but he's made the all-star teams a couple of times because he can hit. And it's because I told him, you know, he wouldn't, didn't want to play baseball in Miami. He won, but he played tennis and golf, but it's hand-eye coordination and stuff. And he's a good hitter because of tennis, not necessarily because of me, but I throw in BP and do different things. So, uh, but you definitely got to work. And I've learned, you know, and you got to be more patient with these guys, you know, it's uh, uh, particularly early in my, my career, the old theories of do it my way or hit the highway, you know, type things. You tell a kid this today, that today, and he'll be playing it. Florida State tomorrow or yeah. something. When that transfer portal, you got to be careful what you say. But it's uh, it's definitely different with the young kids. But my my goal now, I coach first base some with his team, and my goal, I don't want anything to do with the lineups. I don't want to do anything talking to the parents, the head coaches in charge of that. And if the parents come ask me a question, I say go see the head coach. Now the kid asks me a question about base running or infield play, then I'm 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 ready for that and having and having a really good time with it. What does it mean to you going into the ABC Hall of Fame? 
Uh, I mean, it's a great honor. You know, it's, uh, you know, I, I got to be honest, I've been to, I've been to over 30 banquets. Okay. Over 30 times I've been. 1973 was my first time I went to the ABCA, Washington, D.C., and stayed at the Mayflower Hotel. And uh, so a long time. I've gone to a lot of the banquets and watching these old guys. I can say that respectfully because I'm an old guy now. Uh, they go up there and, and receive that honor, but it's something that it's the highest honor you can get as a college baseball coach. You know, Miami's a great being the Hall of Fame and Georgia Tech's the Hall of Fame. And like the Cab College did away with baseball, sad to say. But uh, <clears throat> the real deal is being in a Hall of Fames. And, but it's the top, top level that you can get in as a college baseball coach. And it's a great honor to be there. And I've seen some great coaches that uh, have been inducted in the Hall of Fame over the years. And uh, so it's, uh, it's something that's very special. My son, and my wife will go with me for that uh, induction in, in January, and I, I can't wait to uh, to be there and, and be setting up at the, at the stage instead of out in the audience. When you would get done with the spring season and probably finish in Omaha, did you have any way to decompress the season, or was it just get right back into recruiting? <laughs> well, the better you are, the more players you lose. The pro ball. So you're always recruiting. So I was always running camps and recruiting, you know, all summer and fall, and anytime you weren't. And the greatest thing ever was the, the invention of the cell phone. And the worst thing ever is the invention of a cell phone because you can't hide from it. And uh, so it's uh, it still rings sitting here beeping at me as I'm uh, sitting here doing this interview, some phone calls. The president of Little League, by the way, just beat me. Love it. And, you know, well, this was the first year we implemented. You can't have any contact with recruits during Thanksgiving and Christmas time. And I've gotten some really good responses from the college division one coaches, basically thanking us for that, that they yeah. can't, they can't do anything with recruits for Thanksgiving, Christmas this year. It's the first year of it. Well, so it's well, I think, that's a great I think thing. I remember one time when I, yeah, one time I was at Miami and my, uh, and I and my budget, I never looked at it. If you can imagine being a baseball coach, I never looked at my budget one time in 25 years. It didn't matter. But he called me in. And he says, listen, you know, on these phone records, he says, I got this. Some bills are not normal. There was like 30 phone calls that were charged to your phone on Christmas Day from Denver, North Carolina. I started laughing. I said, that's where my parents live. I said, oh, it was Christmas Day. I was, I was, I was calling all the recruits to wish them, uh, you know, Merry Christmas. And, uh, and of course it's changed a lot for the good. Thank goodness. The assistant coaches and the head coaches can relax a little bit during certain times. And, and, uh, hopefully everybody's abiding by those rules and, and, but you know, it's just changed so much. Kids were, are, are committing so early, which, just sets you up to make mistakes. It's hard enough to decide for sure whether a kid's going to be able to leave high school and play in a top program. But if you got to decide that and he's in the ninth grade, boy, guys change a lot. They change a lot from the time they're a senior to a freshman. So that's one of the things I don't like about the recruiting process. But you got to do there and you got to present yourself as a player and give yourself a chance to get a scholarship and 
and you got to rely that they're not going to pull your scholarships, which is another issue and all those things. So it's a, it's a crazy world out there. And, you know, I like going who you, you know, took to the dances. They would say you, you stayed with them and you worked with them. How did you know it was time to hang it up? Uh, which is time in Miami for me. Uh, you know, we actually, it was announced three years before I, uh, committed and we hired my assistant coach Gino Damari uh the day that and we run we won the ACC and we were getting ready to head to the tournament and they gave me a contract extension for three years we did a contract extension knowing that would be my last contract it was now standing it was the right time for me because I was a head coach at and in junior college for four years in Georgia Tech for 12 years at 16 and then 25 at Miami that's 41 years you know, that's about all the fun or punishment any one person deserves. Now, if you're in Miami and you're responsible for 35, 20-year-olds, I promise you, my phone rang in the middle of the night sometimes. And it's too much to do. You can do uh, – Miami's a great place. You, you can – there's so many great things to do, but there's some things you probably shouldn't do, too, that allows you to have, uh, you know, different things going on. Do you have a fail-forward moment? Do you have something you thought was going to set you back, but looking – looking now it helped you move forward well I, I gotta tell you that 1996 when i lost on the last pitch i had nightmares after that for a year and i had a very hard time i i, I would wake up in the middle of the night and i was sweating and i, I had a nightmare that was under the stadium could see out couldn't get out but could look and the game was going on i was trapped under the stadium for a long time and i really didn't get over that until 1999 when we won first for my first ring at uh, at Miami so it was a that was a, a huge point right there there's so many once winning the first ACC title at Georgia Tech winning the first ACC tournament at Miami was special my first win at those places were special uh just so many great moments uh having so many great players and and watching your players yeah, I mean, it's so easy to talk about No More or, or Ryan Braun or Pat Burroughs, all those guys. I mean, guys made $100 million. How about that? It's amazing how many guys I got that made, made $100 million in a game. It's easy to talk about them, but I got guys like this this guy's house that I'm going to Saturday night that I'm flying up for just for the party. I'm going to be there three hours for his party and a bunch of players from Georgia Tech are going to be there. But his goal was to retire – when he was 50 years old and uh, sell his company for $50 million, 50. Well, he surpassed that and he hasn't retired and he's buying and selling companies and, uh, and he just can't get out. He says, you know, it's just, he's having a great time doing it. The challenge they're doing, it's just like a game. He learned how to, to uh, compete in college in baseball and the classroom. He was an engineering student at Tech and, and, and and he's learned how to do that there, and and it's just a great. This for, for me. I got doctors and lawyers, and an entrepreneur like Mark Buffett. I'm talking about, but you know, and, and the first guy I ever made a hundred million dollars in a game was Kevin Brown, a hundred million, and now they got the Dodgers got a guy making seven hundred million. It's amazing. The I saw Kevin Brown against the Braves. This would have been ninety eight, maybe playoffs in Atlanta. Saw yeah. Kevin Brown slice up the Braves. Yeah, well, he's, you know, he didn't pitch really. He was a shortstop in high school. But I remember him getting on the mound and 
I can't really show this on, on this here, but taking his first stretch and looking at first his feet were together, and he didn't know how to pitch at all. I mean, at all. But he threw a pitch, and it was like 84, 85 with sink. And he left Georgia Tech three years later throwing 95 with sink. He's like Andy Bennett. And, and Kevin Brown is a tremendous, tremendous challenge. I mean, competitor. Uh, I told I was sitting with Dave Dombrowski in the office in in Miami when Kevin was pitching for the Marlins there. And I said, I'll tell you one thing about Kevin. He, all, he pitched inside. I said, I don't think he tried to hit people, but he had this great sinking going in. He always led the league and hit batsmen. And Dave pulls up on his on his computer and he goes, geez, Manetti. He goes, he's leading the league here too. I said, he just pitches in a lot. And the ball really sinks and moves in on right-handers. And it's so hard, you cannot get out of the way of it. And and just Kevin would tell me, yeah, you know, now. He says, I just try nice and smooth, get him to hit ground balls, you know, 95, 96. Every once in a while, I'll go, to, you know, four seams, go up and in and throw you know, 98, 99, whatever, and, and try to throw it by. But mainly, I just let him hit it. But 95, 96 was sink. That's why I got $100 million right there. And he was an innings eater, too. He's so big. He just – he ate up innings. Yeah, well, he did. He got bigger in college and bigger in pro ball. His nickname when he walked on was Blade because <laughs> he was thin. He was like 6'3 and thin. And, you know, I, I don't know how much Kevin weighs now. Uh, his son pitches at Georgia Tech, so I saw him when uh, they came in town at, at Miami – couple of years ago and I mean he's he's a, he's a lot stronger now than he was out of high school and he's a tremendous worker you know off the field and in the weight room and doing all the things you do that you know particularly early in my career but as a player I was told two things by the Red Sox when I signed don't lift weights because you get muscle bound and this is how crazy this theory is and two, they told me, don't drink beer. If you drink beer to go straight to your legs, it'll slow you down. <laughs> if you're going to drink, drink nothing but hard liquor. <laughs> so now, I'm 45 years later, I've stuck with that program. No lifting and only hard liquor. I'm just kidding. But, uh, well, maybe I'm not. I don't know. I'll let you think about that one. But uh, the philosophies have changed so much, how big and strong guys and fast they are. And and we got to prepare the young players to get ready for that, to challenge Starting on my son as a 12 year old, and he's decided he loves baseball, and I can't get him to do anything else other than school and make A's, which he's at a private school. My wife is actually Chinese, so he's, thank goodness, got some of those Asian genes in him. He's making all A's, and he's got a few of my genes in him playing baseball, too. So we're, we're having a great time with him, my wife and I. We, we're in Vero Beach. The only thing that'd be better about Vero Beach is the Dodgers were still here. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, I really wish they were here so I could go watch them play. You know, you talked about not just the baseball players that you've had success, but but in the real world success. Do you feel like baseball kind of breeds that? I, I always felt like baseball because of the challenges of playing the game and then especially adding college, going to class, I just felt like it bred successful people. Well, it, you know, people, we talk about guys come to Miami or came to, the tech sometimes to play for me because you know you want to play pro ball, but you know, as good as Miami was and whatever, 95% of the guys don't play in the big leagues. They don't realize that thing. You don't realize when you when you sign a pro contact like I did, you're gonna you're gonna be in pro ball two or three years and they throw harder and better breaking stuff and you're back home after two or three years. If you can get that degree and 
one of the things I really liked at Miami that uh, was started when I was there, that guys signed pro when they came back, we paid for the rest of their education, made sure they were on the track, right track to be able to do it because that's what most of them are going to do. Do you have any evening or morning routines that you do? I know you had some health issues, but you're back on the right side of it. Do you have any evening or, or morning routines that you do that you like? Well, you know, I've got a, a wife that keeps me busy and I've got a son that's 12 years old. So, uh, you know, and he's playing sports and I take him to school every, just about every morning. And, you know, at 740, we head to school, which is right across the street. I live on the island. We can walk there by driving over. And, uh, but we're right by the beach and we drive over there and I come back and drink coffee, walk my dogs and read the newspaper and go out to dinner, lunch and, 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 I've been, I'm on the little league board, so I'm involved in that and I do some, I've been teaching, you know, as you said, the health issues I had, I was diagnosed last year, uh, in August, they thought I had prostate cancer. So by this time of year, I knew I had prostate cancer. So I didn't start treatment until, uh, late February, early March. And I had to move back to Miami for two months and do, uh, the treatment at the, at the uh, Proton Center, which uh, I did that every single day. I went in the hospital and did treatments, which set me back and uh, uh, slowed down. I'm, I'm, gosh, I'm actually down from the time I was under the weather there and found out I was, I was sick. I weigh about 20 pounds less now than I did. Not that I was, you know, that much overweight. I'm just, I weigh 10, actually, I weigh uh, about, Somewhere between ten and fifteen pounds less than when I graduated from college. Well, you so told I'm a good gonna... story on one of our pre-calls about you weren't going to ring the bell once you got done with treatments. Well, I didn't. You know what? I I didn't know anything about <clears throat> cancer. I can tell you, all of a sudden, when they point that finger at you and say you got cancer, and I read a lot and I wanted to wait, and I found out prostate cancer is very slow, so I could make a, a decision based on a lot of input and a lot of you know, educating myself to it. But when I, when I was finishing the, uh, the treatment uh, on Wednesday and I was finishing on Friday, I asked the doctor, I said, now on Friday, when I ring this bell, that means I'm well, right? And he got quiet in the room. He goes, no, not really. That means we finished the treatment and we hope we got it. And we hope it didn't come, it doesn't come back, but we're no better in three to five years. I'm going, oh gosh, you know, three to five years. I got to wait for that. But I did my nine month uh, treatment, uh, last week and everything was clean. So that was good, but it's, uh, was, uh, it's a tough process for me. The toughest process was the mental part of it because my son and wife stayed here in Vero, which is about three hours from the hospital, which is a little South of, uh, of, uh, Miami. And, uh, so I was in there, but they came down every, every single weekend to see me. So that was nice. And uh, how do you stay positive in that when you're going through treatments? How do you stay positive? Well, you know, I think sports prepare you for life. A lot of things, you know, the old saying bumps in a row. But I, uh, when they told me, I, uh, my, my wife and I uh, lived at the Ritz Carlton. We had it tough in Miami. So we lived at the Ritz Carlton. <laughs> I had a three bedroom condo even before I was married overlooking the ocean. And so, when I went back and I was doing the treatment, so I rented an apartment at the Ritz and I knew that it's funny. I knew that, uh, they had 24 hour room service and a nice bar. 
you know, and it'd be a good place because I knew all the people there and everything. Well, I never did room service one time and I never went to the bar one time. I was very much game face. I, I got up at six o'clock every morning. I did my treatments, uh, drank a couple cups of coffee, a light breakfast, worked out in the afternoon. By six o'clock, my door was closed. By night, nine o'clock, there was lights out. And I was very focused on getting through the process and, uh, I didn't, even, I didn't even go to games at, uh, at Tech during that time. You know, I was just in my room. I, kind of, I, I said I was locking myself in a dungeon. The Ritz Carlton is not really a dungeon, but I treated it like that, that I wanted to be, you know, in there and, and get through it. And I had some people to help me. Of course, it was, it was great that my wife and son could come see me every weekend. And I didn't do treatments on Saturday, Sunday. So they would, they would come down on Friday when I knew Brightland trained the bullet training comes to Miami from up here. So that helped a lot. And they came down and I actually came home one time where I didn't do a treatment on a Friday, and, but damn being there and people in uh, Miami, I was lucky at, uh, at the hospital. They were very, very good to me and just being able to talk to people and, and, uh, but being mentally tough, that's the toughest part of it, you know, getting through it. And I just didn't eat much. And normally my dinner was a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. And, and that's what I ate for dinner because I really like peanut butter and jelly, by the way. But I, I, I wouldn't too. go out to I eat. I went out to eat one time in I two still, months. That's still one of my go-to lunches is pack my own yeah. peanut butter and jelly. Yeah, well, I do too. Or peanut butter and banana uh, sandwich too. I, I, that's my two favorites. You know, I'm a Southern guy. I'm from North Carolina, so that's the stuff you eat growing up. In, nah, in, you're from Evansville. You might have grown up in North Carolina, but you're you're from Evansville, Indiana. Well, I spent five years in Evansville. The rest of my growing up days were in uh, were in Evansville. <clears throat> I don't remember what I, I had some great days. I went to Fairlawn Elementary School there and then was going to Bossy School. And then I, I, I left and went back to North Carolina. My dad changed jobs and went back. But uh, I had a little league baseball, <clears throat> you know, there. But I started a league in in North Carolina playing for the JCs. And I tell these kids, and I'm speaking to all the parents in January, of, of, or to all the coaches, which means they're all parents pretty much. And uh, the, uh, I remember when I was eight years old playing for the JCs in Lexington, North Carolina, like it was yesterday. And I'm standing at second base under the lights and playing a game. And they, they call me in to pitch. And I go in to pitch in, in a game. And I mean, I was such a, enlightening and learning experience that started my career playing baseball. And I didn't even know it again. From then on, I played baseball and it's, uh, again, but it taught, taught, I told the reason I wanted my son to play sports is to, to learn how to win, learn how to lose, learn how to compete, learn how to be a good teammate, learn all the things you learn with a team. And, and he was doing that in golf and tennis, but <clears throat> baseball is more of a team sport to me. And, and, you know, he's, uh, I remember opening game here. He was uh, ten, and they they brought him in to pitch opening day. That night we came home, and I always sit down and talk with him. And I one of the great things about being retired is I spend a lot of time with my son and my wife. And my son every night I sit down and talk to him before he goes to bed, and he's talking about that day. He goes, "Man, Daddy," because you, he says, "I don't know whether you realize it, but he says you know it was opening day, so the stands were full." And they bring me in to pitch. He goes, now that was pressure. He says, first time I ever pitched. And he said, I don't know when I'm going to be able to sleep tonight. <laughs> that was a learning experience. And you know what? And being able to handle pressure situations, 
has made me better as a teacher, learning how to concentrate, to focus, made me better as a golfer. It made me better in everything in life to be able to compete and do what you got to do. And I think sports teaches you so many things that, uh, you know, uh, just baseball was my life, you know, from the time I was eight on really. I mean, I played three sports in high school in Evansville. And so I played there and I played uh, two sports. So I moved to North Carolina, basketball and baseball. You got to play basketball both places. Yeah, as you yes, know, you do. Yes, there's life there. What are some and final I, thoughts before I let you go, coach? What's my final thought? Thought don't you know? Don't leave anything. Don't don't ever be able to say I wish I would have done better. I wish I would have done this. You know, do your best. I tell our players uh, when you go to bed at night and you're brushing your teeth and you're looking at that mirror, make sure you understand that you did your best that day in baseball and in school and everything you did in life that day, and you'll be very successful. And that's the thing that uh, you know. I feel like you know I work very hard and and. Uh, we're our players and we worked hard and we outworked people and that's why we won and that teaches you about life coach thanks for your time man i'm looking forward to seeing you in dallas so enjoy enjoy the evening for the hall of fame banquet all right thanks you're I'm on the really right side of it this time you're not sitting anymore you're gonna be on the stage well that's good i'm looking forward to coming thanks a lot yes sir i want to wish everyone a great convention we have record attendance for the hall of fame banquet this year Congrats again to Coach Morris on the much-deserved honor. We have a chock-full week of podcasts with Captain Getz and the Marines coming out tomorrow, convention preview on Wednesday, an extended interview with Alan Jaeger from the Inside Pitch Convention edition on Thursday. I hope this gets everyone excited for the convention. Thanks again to Jim Richardson, John Litchfield, Zach Hale, Matt West, and Antonio Walker in the ABC office for all the help on the podcast. Feel free to reach out to me via email, rbrownlee at abca.org. Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at CoachB underscore ABCA, or direct message me via the MyBCA app. This is Ryan Brownlee signing off for the American Baseball Coaches Association. Thanks, and leave it better for those behind you.